started a, a decarceration program that um, got um, got uh, review. It was it was devo- it was devoted towards trying to get release of people who were in pretrial custody, um, get them released from prison who had you know were over who were basically mostly overlooked uh, by the system. Mm-hmm. So we developed we developed a program to identify uh, people worthy of, of release. Host Melissa Rosenblum is one of only a few women certified by the Supreme Court of New Jersey as a criminal trial attorney. When you add kids, a booming law business, and a little black book full of subject matter experts, you've got the Mighty Merp podcast. And part four in this series. That's MightyMERP.com. Without going into all the crazy twists and turns in this case, right? Because they can watch it on Netflix. Right. They can watch it. <laughs> they, so if you, so we, we, we investigate. We, you know, we, we eventually find out who rented the other cars. We, we start to investigate those folks, and we, we develop some pretty compelling evidence against one of the individuals who had rented the other car. A lot of other, a lot of background information and so forth. She also met the, the description of the getaway driver. Very, very very close to tail um, but they had gotten the statement from Chester's friend and that was extremely detailed um, and um, it was a kind of statement only someone who was involved from start to end would would have been able to give so what 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 we did what we didn't know we didn't learn for 27 years was the night of the murder there was a call made to the tip line, the anonymous Philadelphia police tip line, specifically identifying the woman, one of these, the woman who had rented one of these other, I mean, this was before the news had even been, the news of the murder had been reported. Mm-hmm. That night, while they're still taking statements, a call comes into the tip line identifying this other woman as having been involved with crime with, with very specific details. That that's that tip, that statement was buried in the detective's file and, and was never turned over for 27 years. That was the kind of statement that would have, I'm almost certain, exonerated him at trial because, you know, there is no way for anyone to known about this unless they had very specific knowledge of the crime and the person involved. They could not have called this tip in. When when you say it's buried, are you saying that the detectives knew, yeah, or the correct. or the district attorney no, the, handling the, the case knew? The detectives knew. It was not in the district attorney's file. It was in the detectives' file. They they had this statement and never turned it over to the to the prosecutor. I mean, I can't say for sure they didn't know. The prosecutor didn't know it wasn't told, but it wasn't in the prosecutor's file. It was in the detectives' file. So my assumption is the detectives who knew they had, t- they had coerced a statement, okay, and phonied up a statement, now now come into evidence that it was someone totally different. And um, how are they going to explain this? How are they going to explain there's a tip identifying the person who actually rented the car that was using the crime? How are they going to explain that someone in, in a different car who had nothing to do with the case gave a, 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 a detailed you know, six-page, single-space statement with every detail the cops had about the crime in it. Mm-hmm. They couldn't. And, and the only explanation they would have to come up with was we, we, forced, we, we had her sign a statement that she 
you know, never made. And they were, you know, and at that point, they're not going to do that. They're going to protect themselves. So they hide the evidence of the actual perpetrator. Why, Chester, do, why do they keep the hidden evidence? That's a good question. I don't know. Because I wouldn't have. <laughs> if I was trying to hide my wrongdoing, I'd have just thrown that in the trash. Right, I don't know why they kept it. They I kept don't know. it. I'll tell you, they kept it because I think, you know, at the time, those files were not available to anybody. I mean, they, they, they could, they were, they, you know, your defense never had a right to them. They were never being ordered to be turned over. No one was asking for them. They kept these files to themselves, and, and um, I'm not sure why they did. That's a good question. That's a, it's a very good question. So then the question becomes, what changed? You said you worked on the case for about 15 years, right? You and the Innocence Project. Wait, say that again. I'm sorry. I, I said. Um, you worked on this case for 15 years, you yes, said? Yes, so, correct. So what changed? Um, so what changed? So that's a good, really good question. So that, it's funny you say that because in, in, in the documentary, right, they mm -hmm. asked me that question. That's, that's one of the key questions they ask. What changed? What, what happened? And I said, you know what happened? I said, I said um, not, despite all the investigation we did, all the work we did, all the appeals we filed, all the newspaper articles. I, I got the choir to write about this. I mean, we got a podcast. To, you know, somebody. I so much was done with this. I said the one thing that made. I said, you know, what, I said the one thing that made the difference was Larry Krasner got elected and actually took this stuff seriously and actually hired someone who was prepared to fairly and honestly investigate it and look at it. And that's what I said. That's what made the difference. I said politics is what made the difference. Right. Well, it's such a crazy thing to say. Politics made the difference because in the end, you you do need somebody in an office like a district attorney's office to admit that a mistake could have been made. And nobody wants to do that when somebody. No, the is entire system is built on avoiding uh, uh, avoiding. Uh, responsibility of mm -hmm. den uh, denying mistake, right? Like the entire for you know things are ch have been changing a little bit, but but by and large, um, you know our entire our criminal justice system is built in a way to protect the to protect the, you know the result, mm -hmm. uh, no matter whether it's right, wrong, or right. otherwise. And you it is it is designed. I mean, it's designed to to protect um you know the to, to protect the, the government's uh investigation the court's decisions right and but here's the thing the the argument from the state's perspective is we need finality our victims need to be able to have that finality so we have to believe in it completely right well but when finality be, you know, becomes a virtue in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, you know, and, and, and you, and it, and, and you fail to acknowledge that there are, you know, there's human error or worse, bad motive, which, which has been demonstrated mm -hmm. okay, that, that, you know, then you have, um, I, I think then you have, you know, a, you have a system that is, you know, is designed to is designed to fail and is designed to create injustice. Right. I always say that there's this misnomer, this misbelief among people that, that are not involved in the criminal justice system that there's going to be a truth that comes out during right. trial. 
like Correct. TV, that aha moment. And yeah. um, there's no truth that comes out. There's, right. you know. Right. There's a versions. There's different stories that are it's different versions, different accounts. One thing I, one thing that this t- taught me and, you know, and you, you didn't, I don't think I needed this case to teach you, but it became very, it, this is very demonstrative of, 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 a, of a phenomenon or, or the part of the culture of our criminal legal system. And that is that the police investigate a case. The police look for the truth to a point. Mm-hmm. That is, they, they try to figure out, they try to get an idea of who is responsible for a particular crime. Once they reach a certain level of confidence, they, they stop becoming detectives, they stop becoming investigators, and they start becoming advocates. Right. So, so their investigation then changes from a whodunit to how do we convict him. And, Correct. And a lot, well, and, yeah. well, it goes to their narrative. I always say that. Yeah. Once they right. start believing in the narrative that they've created – they only look at the evidence that supports and, their narrative. And it, and it taints how they investigate. It taints how they question and how they treat people and how they treat witnesses. Um, they become an advocate for a conviction as opposed to simply investigators trying to get to the closest, version, the closest thing to the truth they can. Mm-hmm. And that clearly is what happened in this case. Clearly. I mean, obviously, this is a extraordinary case because they not only did they become they became advocates to the you know in the worst possible way which was that they coerced false evidence um to build to build a case because they they believed one piece of circumstantial evidence proved their case they then proceeded to create false direct evidence of that conclusion and you know that is the the worst case scenario, and it's it's how you get innocent people convicted. Right, and so the district attorney's office under Larry Krasnow agreed to review all the evidence. They're the ones who went correct. to the correct, correct. He hired uh, Patricia Cummings, who had run a similar uh, effort uh, office in, I believe, in Dallas, and so she comes to Philadelphia. And I knew this was coming because I followed the election very carefully. Obviously, I had an interest in this because we had, I had a client. I followed it very carefully. I paid attention to who he was hiring, and, and I followed the announcements. I heard she was hired, and I checked with my colleagues. And when she arrived, I was there the next day with my petition and handed it to her. And, you know, I don't know if I was the first one online, but, you know, <laughs> we, were, we were very close to being first online. <laughs> So what, ha- what, what happened next was shortly after she arrives, she, she was acquainted with some of these Netflix producers because she had been involved in a case they, they had worked on in, in Texas. And they called her. They were doing this series. And they wanted a case where that had not been resolved and they could follow through the process. And literally, I, she, I had given this thing to her like a week or two before. And she calls me. She's like, what do you think about this? I said, are you kidding? I was like, are you kidding? I'm like, I've been trying to do nothing but get attention in this case. Of course we would do this. I'm jumping on top of the building, waving my <laughs> right, arms. Right. right. So I ran up to see Chester and I said, listen, I, I'm not going to make this decision for, for you, but if you ask my advice, I think we should do this. I said, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to expose a lot about your personal life and stuff. But I said it all helps, and he was one hundred percent on board, and they did the movie. Right, and so they found 
the evidence, the hidden evidence or the buried yeah. evidence. Well, I'll tell you, that was another, that was a great Perry Mason moment. So they, um, they, uh, retrieve the detective's file from the archives. They call me up to go over and look at it. And they opened the file. They gave me the file. They put me in a conference room. I went over there with my investigator. We sit down. We split up two boxes. I pull the first file I pull out of the box, right? You can't make this up. First file I pull out of the box had that uh, anon memo discussing the anonymous tip. And I, I'm looking at this in complete disbelief, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I showed, I gave it to the investigator. I said, I'm not going to just tell me what you think of this. And she looked, we looked at each <laughs> other. And I said, here's the, I said, the next thing we did was we, we both took a, we both took a, you know, an iPhone photo of it. Cause I didn't trust anybody at this point. Like this was, I may never see this again. So I said, I said, take a picture of this. I said, send it to three of your friends and tell them to keep the picture. I said, we'll explain later. <laughs> that's not just a Perry Mason moment. That's like a John Grisham. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I'm like, I didn't trust anybody at that point. I was like, I am, I am taking a picture of this. <laughs> Yeah, that's always, I have to say, I've never had it in that capacity. But sometimes, you know, when you look at something and you're like, what do you make of this? Because you, you I, I don't the... want to, yeah. right, I don't want, I, want, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm sure I'm not understanding this. And I said, you look at it, you tell me what you think. She looked at me with her jaw open and I said, yeah. I said, there's the smoking gun. I, I, I couldn't, honestly, it was mind boggling. Wow. And so... Um, in the end, did he, he gets, he gets, he got exonerated, he got exonerated. He got an apology from the DA and from the judge <laughs> and he, you know, and he got and out and, uh, how many years goes, though? How many years? 20, 28 years. It's a, yeah, 20. I mean, he had more years in jail than he had lived outside of jail by the time he got out. And that's why when you watch it, you just cry. It, it, it's it's really I can't I mean I I've seen it a few times obviously and I cry every time it's it's just they did a beautiful job with the movie but uh, I'll say that they did a great job with it. So twenty eight years and uh, he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Who- no, no, there was there's I think well I think Krasner's office is exonerated. Uh, I don't know how many people twenty five or thirty people uh, since he's come in, which is about. I don't know, three or four people a year. And I mean, they're, they're, they have, you know, I don't know how many, you know, cases they're reviewing now, but lots, lots. So what do you think is the biggest misconception the public has about the legal system? Um, I mean, I think that there is this perception. I think you were right that, you know, we get to the, the you know, that, you know, that, you know, the, the, the sort of the truth, the divining process. They think there's a perception that there's uh, that that's more that that's uh, more trustworthy than it is. I think there's a perception that there's you know physical evidence, DNA and stuff is often you know um, the deciding factor more, in much more often than it is. Most people are not exonerated from DNA; they're exonerated from you know, discovering misconduct or hidden evidence and things like that. Um, I think that there's a misperception about the power of identification evidence. I think that is probably one of the greatest bases for innocent people being in jail, being misidentified. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is this kind of popular view that, you know, trauma leads to 
this like photographic event in your mind, which is right. really which, which is I, actually the complete opposite. Correct. Of what the reality and truth correct. is is that correct with trauma, right. uh, the reliability actually decreases. Exactly. And that yes, it's crazy. Um, so, are you still doing this type of work, Alan? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm working on a number of. Uh, well, I've got a couple of. Uh, a couple of appeals I'm working on now from cases from that era. Um, case from 1976, if you can believe it, there, there was some, there was some, uh, again, some undisclosed evidence of, you know, of identification of an alternative person uh, that had not been turned over. Um, that man's doing life without parole. And so he's, you know, he's in his sixties now and we just got the homicide file and discovered this evidence and we're, working on trying to get it, get him a new trial and maybe get him out. Um, working on a number of civil rights claims for people who have already been exonerated. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are, those are in the, just the very much the starting gate. Um, you know, just, you know, really incredible. All of these stories are sad and terrible. Um, and you know, and you, you know, and you find out how, how much, um, you know, how many, how much, I, you know, it's just there's there's a great deal of abuse and corruption, in, in, particularly in homicide investigations, and it's um, it's very disturbing. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's exceedingly disturbing. And, you know, power is you know when power is bestowed upon people, um, you know, you know, it can go it can go the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, I I always wonder if it's about just winning like that sports mentality of win at any yeah. cost. I feel like when we were definitely. in Philly, that, that was definitely the motto of the district attorney's office at that time. Like yeah. you there's, needed there's the win. A, that's definitely a component of this, win at all costs. Right, right. Um, I always felt like with, and I could be wrong, I didn't work at a district attorney's office, so I've never prosecuted a case, but... Um, there seemed to be more advancement or career promotions for those mm -hmm. those type of wins and successes. Well, that's and true. That's, you definitely, yeah. That's Victor not how it was at our office. That wasn't no, a no, determining no. factor, you know. No, that's true. That's true. So um, you went actually back to the public defender's office after. Uh, uh, sure. Yes. Uh, so, so I, I I lived long enough and and and, and stayed in the business long enough that uh, old colleagues, uh, you know, uh, got ahead and and got uh, and got promoted and and were hired to run the office. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be asked to help in that process. And so, uh, an old colleague of mine who was he had become the chief defender called me to become the first assistant at one point. It was the second. That's the second in command and. You know, I finally got to see if I could do all the things I said when I was a, just a simple assistant defender doing trials. I wanted to see if I could actually do the things I claimed I knew. I, I see if I actually could, uh, you know, when, when you're the you know junior attorney, you're like, you know best for what the office needs. And then this I was is in how, position. I was running the office. <laughs> This is I how was, I yeah. would do it, and it would be correct. Yeah. So, and what, so I, I had that chance, and and uh, and then I, so I did that for about a year and a half, and uh, uh, even weirder turn of fate was the chief uh, decided to uh, resign or retire 
from the Defender world. And uh, I became the interim chief for about a year and ran the office. So did you implement the changes that young Alan, <laughs> that idealistic Alan would have done? Let's just say I, I, I did some things, but I, I made a commitment not to make any uh, strategic changes to the office and in, 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 out of respect for whoever was going to take over eventually. I didn't want to send the office on a, a course. But I did some things. I mean, I certainly was able to hire attorneys uh, which was one of the more um, gratifying experiences and, and uh, you know, things I enjoyed a lot. You know, we, we definitely did some, I definitely was able to implement some things. Um, I, I started a, a decarceration program that um, got, um, got uh, review. It was, it, was devo it was devoted towards trying to get release of people who were in pretrial custody, um, get them released from prison, who had, you know, were over, who were basically mostly overlooked uh, by the system. Mm -hmm. So we developed, we developed a program to identify uh, people worthy of, of release. Um, I was proud of that accomplishment. Um, and people that were not yet convicted of anything. Yes, c correct. They were people who uh, were being held on other high bail or had other uh, other things that were keeping them in jail and, um, you know, were really not dangerous. Uh, we're not people who really were dangerous and didn't need to be in custody. So they were escaping review for various reasons. And, mm -hmm. uh, it was a program we started, which I was pleased about. Um, but, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was extremely gratifying. Um, <laughs> And very interesting to, you know, hard to believe, you know, I pinch myself like, how, how am I in charge of this office? It's a big you know, office just, too. It's, it's a 250 place. lawyers. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you're very large. back in private practice. Yes. Back in private practice, criminal defense and civil rights stuff and you know, just running cases now. So you went in, uh, I would say full circle, but almost two circles now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I thank you for joining the Mighty Merp podcast. Before yeah, we fun. end, I have fun questions for you. Oh, the lightning round. <laughs> it is sort of like a lightning round. Um, so we'll start with some easy ones. Okay. Would you recommend law school to your, your, your kids or to young adults now? Um, probably not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> For my kids, I'd like to see them do something else. But uh, what do you do to relax? What's that? What do you do what to do? relax? Oh, do to relax? Well, until this year, my son graduated. I was very involved in uh, uh, run, uh, helping run youth baseball stuff. He was, which was, uh, which was a great distraction. Um, so I did that, and. Uh, 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 now I've got to find something else. I'm not sure what it's going to be. Are you I, an empty nester now? Is he going to uh, college? Yes. yes, he just graduated high school, leaving for college. He's doing a gap year, actually, that he's going to college. Oh well, congratulations! I'm a, I'm a year behind you, but my okay. my youngest, my baby, is turning 18 in four wow. in four days, and I'm a little bit in denial about that. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Um, are you reading anything right now? Um, I just, uh, well, I was 
just had my week uh, summer week off. I read uh, I read a book about uh, Dan Shaughnessy, who was cover the Red Sox for the Boston Globe, wrote a book about uh, it was a memoir of his final year. Uh, it's just, it was it was a memoir of him following his son in his senior year in baseball, which was what I just did. I was like, oh, this my is perfect. Yeah. I just read that. And um, I, uh, during COVID, I went on a Civil War bender. So I've been, uh, I've been reading various, uh, various stories about Civil War battles. That sounds uh, dad appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, don't ask me why. Late, late Civil War interest onset. Uh, favorite movie? Um. Ooh, that's a good. That's a tough one. Uh, my favorite le- law movie is The Verdict. Mm-hmm. Old Paul Newman. Yeah, agree. Uh, mm-hmm. Down on his luck, Boston lawyer. Phenomenal movie. You do you have a favorite baseball movie? Favorite baseball movie would be Bull Durham. Oh, that is one of my favorite. I like A League of Their Own too, though. That's also very good. Now to be a now a series. I know I haven't seen it yet. I I do. I'm so exhausted by the end of the day. Anytime I try to watch something, I just fall asleep. It's kind of sad. I know. Yes. Um, So I always end with this one. It's such an easy one, too. Uh, Favorite color? Favorite color? Uh Uh-huh. Blue. Everyone goes with blue. Ocean blue, sky blue. I don't know. At the party, Yankees are blue. There you go. Well, I like the Yankees, too, so that's a good ending. Well, thanks again. and if Thank you. And this was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. I'm so glad we were able to do that today. And as you know, my office is in Atlantic City. Do you hear all the police cars yes. and fire engines and ambulances? Never you, a dull moment. Never a dull moment. I'm going to escape my office before it gets dark here. Very good. All right. I'll talk soon. Thanks all right, again. We'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this series. Don't forget to subscribe, because before you know it, we'll be back with another great conversation. Mighty Merp is available on iTunes, Spotify, and all your favorite apps and players. But the best way to experience the show is to visit MightyMerp.com. That's MightyMerp.com.